This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. From Canberra on Ngunnawal Country, I'm Melissa Clark. Coming up, the US government stepped in to assist the struggling Silicon Valley Bank this week. It's the biggest American bank to fail since the global financial crisis. And yet another data breach with 300,000 identity documents stolen from Latitude Financial. How can we stop these cyber attacks? But first... Australians are being told it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, albeit one that comes with a mega-billion-dollar price tag. The AUKUS agreement represents the biggest single investment in Australia's defence capability. A shared commitment to create a future rooted in our common values. One of the most advanced nuclear-powered subs the world has ever known. The AUKUS deal will see Australia acquire US-built Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines from 2030 onwards, ahead of the development, around a decade later, of new submarines to be called SSN AUKUS, designed in Britain and containing US combat technology. Australia will purchase eight of those new boats, expected to be built in UK and Australian shipyards. This must be the worst deal in all history. Amid the debate this week, two former Prime Ministers from both the Liberal and Labor parties came out to rubbish the plans. For $360 billion, we're going to get eight submarines. If we buy eight, three are at sea. Three are going to protect us from the might of China, really. The reality is this will take a lot more time, cost a great deal more money than if we had proceeded with the submarine project we had with France. So are Australian taxpayers sinking too much money into this deal for the potential benefits it might bring for our national security? My take would be that it's about as good a deal as we could have expected. The big issue with this is that it's taken so long to get to this point. The original sort of description about getting new submarines was in the 2009 white paper. So it's taken a really, really long time to get to this point and lots of other avenues have been explored, which meant that actually there were very few good options left. Dr Richard Dunley is a naval historian and strategic analyst at the University of New South Wales. So the deal is complex, it has a lot of risk, but it's probably about as good a deal as could be expected in terms of getting nuclear submarines for Australia and trying to avoid issues like the so-called capability gap. As you say, we've been looking at this for quite some time and what we've wanted has changed over that time, moving to wanting a nuclear-powered submarine. What does Australia need nuclear-powered submarines for? What what do they do that is critical that saw us change path from the French diesel-electric ones to this AUKUS nuclear-powered one? Well, that's actually a very good question because the government hasn't actually really told us. They haven't explicitly set out in any kind of review of defence requirements or whatever what it is that they feel nuclear submarines are are for. We had the defence strategic update that was launched with quite a lot of fanfare in 2020, and that stated quite clearly that the answer to Australia's strategic needs was 12 diesel-electric submarines, which were being provided from a, a French design. In 2021, that obviously changed. Now, at least in part, that decision to switch was driven not by a a strategic requirement, 
a, a simple capability issue, namely that the deal with the French was going south quite quickly. And so it was pretty obvious that that wasn't going to actually produce the submarines required. So they needed to hunt around for other options. And this option came available, I think, in, in a way that perhaps wasn't available previously. So there is still this nagging question over quite how these fit into the wider strategic picture. But it's worth emphasizing that nuclear submarines, nuclear powered submarines are an incredibly capable asset in terms of particularly maritime defense and the ability to project power. And so there will be a, a significant addition to the arsenal of, of Australia in terms of defending itself and potentially projecting power within the region. There is absolutely no doubt about that. The question comes about quite where they fit in and whether or not they are the best choice given the huge cost that's associated with them. Let's go to those costs. The costs are a little hard to fathom, up to $368 billion. It's a number that's hard to grapple with. You know, I would compare it to JobKeeper that was $90 billion and was sort of unfathomable at the time. So this is a next level. It could certainly blow out more. I think previous defence projects tell us that. So are submarines important enough to warrant that level of spending compared to fighter jets or aircraft carriers or, or other things we might think of in, in military hardware? So I guess the first point with that number is to put it in a little bit of perspective. That is over the lifetime of the project. So we are talking smaller sums than the initial kind of headline figure. And it also includes for inflation. And obviously, the dollar will buy a lot less in 30 years time than it will do now. So perhaps comparing it with things like JobKeeper doesn't quite add up in that kind of way, but it is undoubtedly a very, very large figure. And in terms of, of value for money, it's again quite a difficult proposition to work out because to work out whether it's value for money, you firstly need to decide what it is that you want to achieve. And that's the bit that we're still a little bit missing. They certainly, as I said before, are a very, very capable asset and they do something that realistically nothing else can do. But that has to be viewed within a frame of what you want to do. Is there some benefit in announcing this partnership to produce new submarines that is beyond the submarines' capabilities themselves? Are we also paying for the message that it sends about the ever closer relationship Australia is building with the US and UK in defence terms? I think that in many ways, certainly the initial announcement, the message was the most important thing. When you look at the lead times for this to actually produce additional capability in terms of submarines, it's very, very long. So actually, I think a lot of the initial value of this comes from this kind of the clear indication, particularly that the United States is committed to the Indo-Pacific region and the tying in of the United Kingdom as well. But I think certainly from Washington's perspective, a lot of the, um, the initial value of this is around that diplomatic message to China. Now, how that plays in terms of Australian foreign policy depends where you fit on the spectrum of how Australia should react to sort of growing Chinese strength in the region. And where do you sit on that spectrum? Personally, I feel that sadly, and I'm certainly not somebody who, who views this in any kind of positive light, I feel that, that Australia has to take steps to secure itself because it does appear that China is being increasingly belligerent in the region and is effectively 
where it is not opposed is, is willing to, to really throw its weight around. And you've only got to look at what's happening in, in the South China Sea to see sort of how that plays out. It's not easy to know what the right moves are when what we're talking about can be quite a long way in the future. We're talking the next 30 years here. The strategic environment could change in ways we can't even um, forecast or possibly even imagine at this point. Is it a fool's errand to try and plan for 30 years in advance or is that the difficult reality that uh, our nation's defence planners and ultimately our Prime Minister and Cabinet have to try and do? It is a fool's errand. You only have to imagine if this had been taking place in the early 1980s, an era dominated by the Soviet Union and the Cold War and everything else, and then you're trying to predict what's going to happen in 2010 at the height of the global war on terror, the world is a completely different kind of place. So those are the kind of timeframes and potential strategic shifts or global geopolitical shifts that you can kind of imagine. Um, So it is incredibly difficult to predict. But if you then sort of flip that and say, well, what's the alternative? Just throw your hands up in the air and and don't even attempt to predict it. That seems even more absurd. So I think sadly, that is the case that planners have to try and governments have to try and, and come up with, I guess, a reasoned basket of scenarios that might occur. Now, I think one of the critiques of this deal is that it it is, to a large degree, putting a huge amount of defence resources into one basket. And submarines are really, really good. Nuclear submarines are really, really good at doing one or two jobs in a scenario of largely high intensity, i.e. sort of major conflict against another big power. They are not really good at doing pretty much anything else. And the risk is that if you devote too much of your defence expenditure on one bespoke capability, you end up not being able to do other things. If you imagine all the things that the ADF has done recently from COVID support to bushfire support to uh, humanitarian aid and disaster relief operations in, in Fiji, lots and lots of things are going on, all of which are important, none of which could be done by nuclear submarines. Dr Richard Dunley is a naval historian and strategic analyst at the University of New South Wales. It's quite likely you hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank until this week. It was a bank with billions in deposits, but only around 20 branches, and it catered to a very specific crowd of US startups and tech firms. But it's the largest American bank to fail since the global financial crisis. I came out to talk to the bank, just got in line with a lot of other founders and (laughs) and CEOs. A little nerve-wracking when it comes down to (laughs) how you keep operating your company. The US government stepped in pretty quickly to try and stop the issues spreading. But by the end of the week, there were concerns about another bank, Credit Suisse, and speculation about a broader global banking crisis. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. The first sign of trouble uh, in Silicon Valley Bank, at least the the sort of widespread public seemed to cotton on to, was after markets closed on, on Wednesday last week and it was when they tried to issue some more capital. So they sort of put out this, this release that they were going to, to issue some equity. And, you know, doing an emergency capital raise is not something that any bank boss ever wishes to do. It sort of indicated um, that they, they might be a little thinly capitalized. And the reason that they were is because they'd sold off a lot of their bond portfolio and they realized some losses on that. And that made people 
sort of take a second look at their balance sheet, sort of what assets they seem to have on it. And it transpired they had a huge portfolio of mortgage bonds and treasuries, which they bought sort of right at the peak of bond prices, all of which had sort of fallen in value. And that seemed to spook a sort of fear um, among investors, their share price collapsed, but it also seemed to spook sort of real fear among their deposit base and their customers. And what you saw unfold very, very quickly was a sort of very large scale run. So Silicon Valley Bank had about $200 billion in deposits. Apparently, $42 billion of those were withdrawn in a single day on Thursday. And by Friday morning, you know, the jig was up. Regulators intervened, said the bank had failed and took it into receivership. It all unraveled so quickly once people took a closer look at their books. Does that indicate that maybe there should have been more oversight or, or more scrutiny of Silicon Valley Bank before it got to the point of issuing an emergency capital raising? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's one of the sort of issues that has come really to the fore, because the way that Silicon Valley Bank failed is not some sort of newfangled novel risk that people weren't paying attention to in the banking system. It's sort of banking 101, you know, it deposit it's deposit based because it was all of these tech companies. It was very, very uh, heavily people who didn't have insured deposits. So in America, only deposits up to $250,000 um, are insured by the, the federal agencies. And so anyone who has more than that parked in a bank account um, they're exposed to losses if that bank fails. And 93% of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits were uninsured. And what that meant is that that kind of funding was extremely short term. It was extremely risky and it was a very flighty. As soon as anything went wrong, everyone pulled their money. That's what we saw. So they were borrowing in the sort of shortest possible term from these tech founders. And they piled all of this money into very, very long dated um, assets. And managing that sort of asset liability mismatch is the sort of core premise of what a bank is supposed to do. And, you know, the idea that we can't regulate banks or supervise banks in such a way that they don't take that risk in such reckless fashion is really a pretty damning indictment of the sort of US regulatory system and, you know, what supervisors were doing. It seems impossible that they weren't aware of this risk. I gather that after the global financial crisis in 2008, there was a lot of regulation brought into force for big investment banks to hold a certain amount of cash, but that Donald Trump changed some of those to have different rules for smaller regional US banks. Is that relevant in this situation? Is that what you're referring to or is it something else? Yeah, that's definitely relevant. I mean, it, it sort of depends who you ask, uh, which side of the political aisle, depending on whether you think that's that's the, the real mistake here. But yes, when um, Dodd-Frank was enacted, it imposed certain requirements on banks. One of those that was that they had to have sort of very high levels of cash or liquidity uh, in the jargon. Uh, another was that they couldn't sort of take, you know, too much of certain risks. Um, there were sort of lots of lots of rules like that put in place. And the strictest versions of those rules were put in place on banks that had more than $50 billion in assets. But in 2018, the level was changed such that those stricter rules would only apply to banks with more than $250 billion in assets. And so Silicon Valley Bank was below that threshold and therefore did not necessarily have to comply with a lot of the additional um, requirements imposed on the bigger banks. And in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, it didn't have to submit 
some proposals about how, you know, it would be wound down if it ever failed in a crisis. The big banks have to do that. They're called living wills. And they come up with this whole plan for how they would be resolved. Um, Silicon Valley Bank didn't really have to submit a particularly sort of extensive versions of those plans. And so when it did fail, you know, everyone was sort of working off the cuff. And you ended up having to get sort of pretty extensive government intervention in the end in in order to sort of fix the, the potential problems that it failing might have imposed on the rest of the banking system. Can you run us through that intervention? Would you call it a government bailout or is it more complex than that? Uh, yes, this is the sort of the, the, the hot debate uh, at the moment. And I think, so the government did two things. The first was it stepped in and said that all depositors in Silicon Valley Bank and a second bank uh, called Signature Bank, which also failed uh, over the weekend, um, all of those depositors were going to be made whole. So none of them were going to suffer any losses, even though most of those deposits were uninsured. And the second thing they did was to set up a new lending facility at the Federal Reserve. And this is called the Bank Term Funding Program. And what it does is if you have a sort of treasury bill or you have a mortgage-backed security, the sort of really safe, high-quality assets, then you can put those in that facility and the Federal Reserve will give you in return cash. And they already have facilities to do stuff like that, but The big difference is that this would give you cash at the face value of that bond. Now, that's a little jargony, but basically what it means is if you um, have a 10-year bond that only pays sort of 2% per year in interest, it's probably trading at about 80 cents on the dollar right now because interest rates are much higher than that. So you can get sort of a better return uh, elsewhere. And so a lot of banks that loaded up on bonds, you know, over the past few years are sitting on bonds that are trading below their face value. And what that means is that if all their depositors come back and demand their money all at once, they might not be able to pay them back if they have to sell those assets. So this Fed facility is supposed to sort of help those banks out. And, you know, a lot of people are pointing to the Silicon Valley Bank customers and saying, oh, well, they got a massive bailout because they're all getting paid back. And I have some sympathy with that view, but it does look as though... Once all is said and done and all the assets of Silicon Valley Bank have been sold off, really there's actually depositors are going to be paid back mostly out of those assets. There's not really going to be any additional cost on taxpayers or probably even on um, other banks. And so it's mostly just the equity holders and the bondholders of that bank who are who are really suffering. And so I don't necessarily think that sort of was the sort of most bailouty bit of it. I think the bailout was in this term facility that the Fed has come up with, because what it essentially says is any other banks that have taken the same risk that fell Silicon Valley Bank, you don't have to worry about it anymore, like the Fed's got your back. And in that way, that is a bailout for the sort of shareholders and bondholders in every other bank in the American banking system that ends up sort of leaning on that facility. Since all of this unfolded, we've had the European bank Credit Suisse needing emergency support from Switzerland's central bank. It's a different scenario. They'd been on shaky ground for a while. But we have seen in the past, you know, when they need to go to the failure of Lehman Brothers to see that things can quickly unravel um, in the broader global financial sense. Is there a chance that these smaller parts of instability that we're seeing spreads into something much greater? Yeah. And I think, you know, you've seen contagion from Silicon Valley Bank to other banks in the US. You know, a lot of these small banks are seeing sort of deposit flight to the bigger, safer banks. The factors that seem to have precipitated this sort of latest bout of troubles for Credit Suisse are partly that everyone started looking afresh at the solvency of banks and sort of worrying about, you know, the the sort of problem children of the industry. 
And the second was that um, you had Credit Suisse's biggest investor um, that has sort of really backed it through its ability to sort of transform itself and sort of stop doing so many things wrong, um, come out and say, I'm not giving you any more capital. So you started to see depositors running from Credit Suisse as well. And Basically, Credit Suisse went to the Swiss National Bank and said, no, we are solvent. We do have enough cash to pay out these depositors. Please, will you offer us some liquidity so that people know that they can take our word for that? You can look at our books. And the Swiss National Bank said, yes, actually, you're fine. You're solvent. Here's, you know, 50 billion Swiss francs um, in liquidity. And they're sort of using that to restructure um, their balance sheet a bit. And so I think the sort of really big question for the global financial system is, you know, how solvent and healthy are the banks? Because if the solvency is fine, if they their balance sheets are still sort of relatively strong, they should be able to go to central banks in the event of there being a run. You know, if people are just panicking and people start running and pulling their deposits, solvent banks should be able to go to either their central bank or other banks and, you know, get liquidity in exchange for good assets. Uh, the real problem will be if we start seeing bad assets or bad debts crop up um, in a lot of places. And Silicon Valley Bank was too exposed to assets that have fallen in value. Uh, it seems to be sort of one of the worst performers on that metric, but not the worst behaved. And so the idea that you're going to see other banks in its position, I think you probably will. But what you won't see is sort of banks that are solvent, banks that are sort of still strong, uh, failing just because of the panic. Uh, we have the tools to deal with that. And that's what happened with Credit Suisse. That's Alice Fullwood, The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. Well, another week and another data breach. There has been a long list of them over the last six months. And this week it was Latitude Financial. There's been another major cyber attack on an Australian company. This time, more than 300,000 personal identity documents have been stolen, including 100,000 driver's licences. The federal government has been reviewing the Privacy Act in an attempt to reduce the number of breaches. So will it work? Anna Johnston is the director of Salinger Privacy and former Deputy Privacy Commissioner for New South Wales. Well, there's been plenty of speculation that Australia has become a bit of a soft target for these kind of cyber attacks. And one of the reasons for that is a kind of lack of maturity across both, I think, the private sector and the public sector in terms of cyber security. This is something that hasn't had enough attention paid to it in years. But in my view, the reason we have weaknesses in some of our systems is not just a lack of defences, but it's a lack of kind of forward planning and thinking about the way we collect and manage and handle data. So if I can use an example, those of us who work in the privacy space think about, first of all, reducing the amount of data that an organisation might be collecting in the first place. So it's not creating a kind of honeypot for hackers. So it's not just companies not doing enough to secure their data. Sometimes it's them having data they don't necessarily need to hang on to. Exactly, exactly. Maybe they're collecting information in ways that are not the most privacy protective option. So, you know, taking a copy of someone's driver's licence is a riskier behaviour than just citing that driver's licence in order to authenticate the identity of a person. Um, or even if you have to take a copy for some period of time, keeping it for longer than you really need it for, again, creates a higher level of risk. So in an attempt to stop these data breaches, we have seen the government conduct a review of the Privacy Act. What has that found? 
So that review has been ongoing for a number of years and it is actually about achieving a few different things. One is trying to bring Australia's privacy laws sort of into the modern age. Most of the rules were drafted in the 1980s, so well before most of the the kind of modern-day digital ecosystem privacy risks that we think of and, and suffer from now. Another is to align our privacy laws with the expectations of our global trading partners. So Europe in particular tends to set the benchmarks here when it comes to privacy legal protections, but also to bring the law into line with community expectations. So that review, as I said, has been going on for some time, just over three years now. But the latest report from the Attorney-General's Department, which has 116 proposals to reform the Federal Privacy Act, that report was released in February, so a month ago, and it obviously reflects some of the, the kind of fallout from the Optus and Medibank data breaches from last year in particular. So perhaps more than was thought of when the review process kicked off three years ago, there's been a bit more emphasis on actually beefing up the rules about forcing organisations to not hold on to personal information longer than necessary And there's also some proposals in there about encouraging organisations to be more proactive in thinking about how they manage their privacy risks. In your view, as a professional who's worked in this space for a long time, which do you think are the most crucial changes that need to be made first up? What's the first cab off the rank if you could make some changes with the click of a finger? Yeah, so my uh, kind of wave and magic wand top three wishes, the first is to ensure that there's no such thing anymore as forced consent. So if you think of the kind of business practices we see online where you're just presented with the I agree to these terms and conditions button and you have no option to actually think in a more nuanced way about, well, do I want my information to be shared with third parties for marketing, for example? Give consumers some more rights here to make their own risk assessments, I guess. Well, actually, interestingly, In other ways, we actually want the Act to move away from asking consumers to make those risk Ah. assessments for themselves. So it's actually one of the other drivers, and I think my number two wish (laughs) is um, to move towards what's called a fair and reasonable test. So instead of expecting consumers to constantly be notified, you know, there's really annoying the pop-up banners and the privacy policies you're expected to read. Instead of actually expecting any of us to read those things and then make a decision do we want in or out, the proposal that I strongly support is to impose this obligation on all organisations to act in a fair and reasonable manner when they are collecting, using or disclosing personal information. So it's about shifting that obligation onto organisations to only do what's fair and reasonable instead of having that obligation where it rests now on consumers or us as citizens to figure out do we accept this practice or not. And number three on the wish list? So number three is to actually clarify that the definition of personal information, which is the type of data regulated in the Privacy Act, that that definition really clearly includes when people can be tracked, profiled and targeted in an online environment, even if their legal identity is not known. So the use of kind of pseudonyms and online identifiers that are used to track you online, match up what you do on different sites, and then whether it's targeting you with ads or potentially hitting you with misinformation or exploitative kind of uh, manipulative kind of uh, recommendations online, 
We want that kind of behaviour clearly within scope for regulation of the Privacy Act. At the moment, a lot of companies are saying, oh, well, we can't tell the names of those people that we're tracking online. Therefore, it's not personal information. Therefore, none of these privacy rules apply to us. So that might be uh, the Anna Johnson wish list, but the government will go through its own processes here and, and has promised some reform in this space. But how long do you think we might be waiting for the government to act on some of the recommendations that it, it has been provided? Yes, yeah, so hopefully not too long. We've seen the government already act uh, quite swiftly in response late last year to those really big data breaches. They already increased the penalties in the Privacy Act. So they moved ahead of the rest of the proposals and increase the penalties. They were sitting around the $2 million mark. They're now $50 million. So that reform went through just before Christmas. The Attorney-General has also said that he is committed to bringing the reforms to Parliament this term of Parliament. So whether that means this year or next year, we don't yet know. I certainly think the government should move quite quickly. As I said, the review's been going for three years. There's been a lot of consultation. We know that the Australian community wants the Privacy Act reformed. So, you know, let's get it done. Anna Johnson is the Director of Salinger Privacy and former Deputy Privacy Commissioner for New South Wales. Before we go, there's been a lot in the news this week about concussion in sport. The NRL will introduce an 11-day stand-down policy for players who suffer a concussion, while AFL players have outlined more details of their class action over the issue. We covered concussions in sport a few weeks ago. If you'd like to have a listen, it's in the show titled A Small Change to Super or A Big Political Risk. Well, that's this week's episode. Now, if you like the pod, make sure you subscribe. This Week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John and me, Melissa Clark. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.